Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 56 of the Brown County Hour. This is Carrie Ray. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we have the privilege of introducing Lindsey Evans and his music. Linda Baden shares some information about disease in our forests. And Ruth Reichman will talk about the bison centennial. We have a new forest song from Carrie Ray. Rick Fedick shares a hopeful message. Nancy Crocker will tell us about what's going on with the Arts and Entertainment Commission. And our own Dave Seastrom shares his perspective on the election. In our first segment, we'll introduce Lindsay Evans and we'll listen to his song, Morning Prayer. We'll also listen to a discussion about the diseases and insect infestations that are affecting the health of our forests with Linda Baden. This is Rick Fettig here with the Brown County Hour, and Carrie Ray's next to me. Hi. Hello. You've been on a little road trip here I know, lately, I know, you? but I'm, I'm back. We're excited you're back, and Thank the whole you. team's here. And uh, I'm proud to introduce a new really good friend, Lindsay Evans. Hello. How you doing out there? We're doing good. Uh, we've talked a lot about music. Tonight was the first time that I've heard you do anything, and uh, did a great job for us. Thank you. Be appreciate the opportunity. the show, yeah. You, like most of us, started out as a, at a young age, but when did you start playing music? Um, about 10 years old. Uh, it was one of those situations where I was, uh, I was in sports and, and my parents kind of had a, an inclination that maybe I was a little too emotional for sports. I was one of those kids who cried at every baseball game, win or lose. So, <laughs> yeah, at about 10 years old, they said, well, how about an instrument instead of sports? <laughs> So I, I started playing guitar at that point. Took about eight months of lessons, and from then on, I've just kind of learned from the people I play with and around. Did uh, either of your parents play? Yeah, my dad plays guitar a little bit. He got me interested in it as a kid, and uh, but he's he's really got a lot of how you say stage fright, if you will. Oh, yeah. He's not one to get up on stage. So I think I inherited my uh, my desire to be in front of people and playing music from my mother. So. Uh really enjoyed uh, the songs you played in here for us but you know one of the cool things about 
uh, being here and have an artist come in is also to see what instrument they bring, which we have a lot of guitar players, but and some folks just bring in guitars that are as they came off the rack, but I'm always really interested when an artist brings in an instrument that's absolutely uh, has a look to it like uh, it was sort of discovered and then made one's own. And so I, I have to ask okay. you about your guitar. It looks like it's a, a Fender Dreadnought so, uh, of sorts, but it, yeah. it's, uh, it looks well loved. It looks uh, like it has a really interesting saddle, Indeed. and uh, it also looks like it's uh, it was originally a left-handed instrument, which you are not. So uh, could you tell me a little about it? <laughs> you, you are correct. It, it's um, I believe it was an auction find. My parents do uh, auction stuff, and they picked that left-handed guitar up, and uh, it has a really decent neck on it. And uh, my dad's a woodworker, so the kind of natural progression for me was to become a luthier, not by choice, but by uh, necessity. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that at work. <laughs> yeah, so um, I have a really heavy hand with the guitar, and I've broken a lot of guitars. I used to play like punk rock music and really loud like alternative music. Uh -huh. So I got to the point where instead of paying somebody else to fix it, I learned to fix it on my own. And the intonation was incorrect with the way that the uh, bridge piece was going originally. So I just pulled it out, filled the hole in and cut it the correct direction for right-handed playing. And I see, <laughs> I see. Yeah. It's also interesting to hear that you have sort of this kind of punk uh, background or some things like that, because I almost hear a, in some of your melodic passages and the way you put chords together, I almost would have said like a early grunge, like a, a Nirvana kind of chord progression or the way things moved, but in a really cool acoustic way. It's like a, a great juxtaposition, I think. How, how would you say your transition kind of went from the heavier stuff, obviously, you've played to kind of playing the stuff you played for us today? It, mostly it's just through the discovery of music across the board. I mean, as a, as a kid, I was really into Nirvana. That was about the time that I got into high school and uh, was heavily influenced by uh, Nirvana, Soundgarden, okay. uh, Mud Honey, uh, Meat Puppets. These are all bands that like really got me thinking that I could write my own music. And beyond that, I was I've been in bluegrass bands and blues bands and you know straight up rock and roll cover bands. Sure. And all of these things have, have basically stretched, you know, what I do uh, with the guitar. I, uh -huh. I try to push the envelope of songwriting because people love a good song. They don't love to go out and, and listen to uh, stuff that, that doesn't connect with them. So uh, anytime I hear a song that connects with me, regardless of the genre, I, I take it upon myself to learn it. When did you start writing? Yeah, I, I started about 94, 93. You know, the original stuff that I wrote, I, I was really good at dissecting the anatomy of a song that's popular, and there's, you know, a few key elements, and I would try to incorporate that in some way, because, you know, you always want to leave somebody with a, a part of the song that they can't get out of their head, so... <laughs> Um, you know, I learned that pretty early on that those are the kind of things that, that people want in a song is that hook. So um, I think my original songs that I wrote in high school were about myself and, and uh, about girls and uh, <laughs> about people's moms, which was a funny, uh, <laughs> a funny category to get into well, because as a 16 year old, if you're writing a song and it's talking about mom, you know, when my mother read them, she was like, what? I don't do that. I'm like, no, this is somebody else. I've put myself in this person's shoes. This is song, not a song about you, even though it says mom and I'm singing it. <laughs> so, you know, it, I believe that in writing a song, you can 
take yourself to a different place as well as take the listener to a different place. I just um, really appreciated your stuff. I appreciated that there was a great sort of diversity of sound. You know, you definitely have a style that is yours. Um, Thank you. But not all the songs sound the same, which is always a, right. it's always kind of a dance that you do, right? Like it's going to oh, sound yeah. like you and you want it to sound like you. You have your own sound. Yeah. But you also don't want to put in a record and have every, like three songs in go, wait, didn't I already hear that song? Yeah, that, that is something that I've not necessarily struggled with. But always when I start thinking about, you know, I want to make this a song, I, I know that there's only 12 notes. We, we, we don't have... A, a lot of things to choose from and a lot of melodies have been used and reused and reused so you know I have to figure out when I'm writing a new song what is this similar to how am I gonna distinguish this from that you know not only uh, for a legal standpoint if I ever get the opportunity to sell that song but also from the standpoint of you know you want people to hear it and be intrigued maybe recognize it on some level and then recognize the difference and that difference is something that they can they can say well this is why I like this song. It sounds like this song a little bit, but it's, sure. they do it something different here. Sure. So. Well, it was just really a pleasure um, to hear your stuff. And I, before I forget, because um, I get so excited about the music part, I, I sometimes forget the logistics part that we, of course, want to know about as well, which is where we can get your music if there's an opportunity to get it and listen to it. And then also uh, any gigs you have coming up or places you might be playing, places people can catch you live. I have a, uh, a SoundCloud account that's under the name Atophobia, and that is spelled A-T-E-P-H-O-B-I-A, and the address on that is Unionville. And that is a, it's a reference to Ate, the uh, goddess of ruin from, I think it was Greek mythology. The point being, though, that uh, that's a fear of ruin, self-ruin specifically, that, that I've been battling for a long time in my life. And this whole group of songs, there's three albums on there available for download. And those songs are all in relation to my own inability to recognize my, why I was on a loop of self-destructive behavior and self-sabotaging <laughs> behavior. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'd like to think that that song, the, the, those three albums have concluded that, that, <laughs> that phase chapter. of my life. As for any live gigs, I do busk in Bloomington. Uh, specifically, I try to hit dinner hour um, around the uptown and farm, which is, uh, you know, that's, that's a nice place that I like to, right. to play. So folks, if, you know, if you're looking for a place to hang out and loiter to really good music, that would be a great choice, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, and by the way, just to make sure that the chapter about self-ruin is absolutely closed, we're going to do our part to help with that and post the link to your SoundCloud uh, so folks can grab it. We'll post that on the website and Facebook. Well, Lindsay Evans, we are very happy to have you in here, and uh, we're glad to know you better. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. This evening, we have Linda Baden in the studio. She represents Friends of Yellowwood, and she is a forest researcher. Hi, Linda. Good to see you. Hi, David. Nice to see you. Well, you've, you've brought in an amazing document that you have researched that points out several of the diseases that are affecting our forest. And uh, the principal one that you talked about this evening is thousand canker disease. You want to tell us what that is? Sure. Thousand cankers is a disease that affects black walnut trees. It's interesting because it started out west in eastern black walnut trees that had been planted out there, and then it spread 
back east. So it's one of the latest of the forest pathogens that are affecting our hardwood forests in Indiana. Well, in the information that you shared with us, you discussed the fact that the DNR has been looking at this and discovered several different thousand canker outbreaks, but they're backpedaling on some of this information. Do you want to explain that just a little more clearly? Yeah, for a thousand canker disease to be uh, labeled, it has to have two components. It has to have a certain beetle called the walnut twig beetle and a certain pathogen, a certain fungus that the walnut tree beetle inserts into the trees and causes the disease. What Indiana is doing is saying that they have, uh, they have the fungus, they found a different vector, not the walnut twig beetle, but a, we- a weevil that has carrying that fungus. So they are trying to skirt the situation in Indiana by saying we don't have the thousand cankers disease, we just have the fungus, and now we just found out that we have the beetle in southern Indiana. Well, this has a huge economic impact on the state of Indiana. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. I mean, black walnuts are the most valuable hardwood trees in Indiana. It's a major industry for the state. In 2010, there were an estimated 31.5 million walnut trees in Indiana. Approximately 17.7 million board feet of black walnut is harvested annually with an annual value of $21 million dollars. If all the black walnut trees in Indiana were lost to the thousand cankers disease, it would represent a $1.7 billion loss to the state. Wow. So one of the things that you mentioned is that the DNR is not exactly being forthcoming and that they backpedaled on uh, an earlier observation. You want to talk about that? Yeah, they originally, in 2014, when they got the results of a study that they had done in 2011, they announced that Indiana had joined the other states that now were infested with the thousand cankers disease. Then in 2016, they issued a press release that said, don't sell your black walnut. We do not have the walnut disease in Indiana, and we don't expect to have any substantial problems with it in the near future. So they went back on what they had said in 2014, tried to walk back that statement. Well, there's uh, already several states in which we will not accept Indiana walnut. Is that correct? That's correct. Indiana, because of that finding um, in 2014 that we had the fungus and we had this weevil, uh, in 2015, several states quarantined Indiana black walnut. And one state in particular, Missouri, absolutely forbids any black walnut to enter their state from Indiana. So if you took the advice of the DNR, it's already too late to sell your walnuts. This is true. This is a very good point. Now, rather than telling people, don't sell your walnuts, they need to really be working with both private landowners, walnut plantation owners, and the timber industry to understand what is truly going on, what realistic time frame and expectations might be, and help the private landowner put together a plan for how to deal with the disease. And they've done none of that. Well, one of the things that you pointed out is that there is a hopeful upside to this, but it's related to how much a given stand of walnuts is stressed. Would you go into that a little bit? Yes. Well, the most recent research in the eastern black walnuts in the eastern states has been that the disease might not progress as uh, vociferously as it did in the West. 
but that the deciding point seems to be whether there are stress events that would predispose the black walnut to this kind of insect attack. And so for a private landowner, that might be somewhat good news in that that private person can manage their forest in a way that reduces stress as much as possible, and except, of course, for natural stresses. But on the state forest, this is actually bad news. Right. Because the state is undergoing such a massive amount of logging, a thousand times what they did 12 years ago, that they're severely stressing the forest as it is. And on top of that, they're already dealing with a number of invasive diseases the, or insects, the Asian longhorned beetle, the emerald ash borer, the um, sudden oak death, the sudden oak decline, the gypsy moth. So our forests are already under a huge amount of stress, which makes them even more vulnerable to this kind of uh, disease. So, in essence, you're saying that the DNR has really dropped the ball here. They're not informing people, and their practices are potentially making the whole situation far worse. Yeah, I I, I truly believe that that's the case, that they're trying to put the lid on information. They don't want panic selling of owners of black walnut trees. They want to try to stabilize the market for the short term, because obviously their long term is unknown. And, And they've suppressed information. They drag their feet. They're understaffed. Both forestry and entomology are way understaffed to deal with these kinds of challenges. So they have to rely on Purdue and the U.S. Forest Service to help them out. So, And at the same time, they are removing their black walnuts from the state forest. So they're not playing fair with the private landowner uh, on top of everything else. Well, Linda, this is a tremendously important issue. And Uh, We originally recorded some 19 minutes of your dissertation on this topic, which is sadly a little too long for the Brown County Hour, which is why we're doing the interview right now. But uh, I want our listeners to know that you'll be able to go to our Woodwatch webpage and hear the entire statement after the show is aired. So, Linda, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this important issue. And, David, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. All right. This song is uh, this song's called Morning Prayer Song because that's the first song I like to sing every morning.
Now we pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. We'll begin this segment with a positive piece from Rick Fetty. Ruth Reichman gives us a look into the Bison Centennial celebration. Carrie Ray has something a little different this month in her four-song presentation. And we'll close with a Lindsay Evans song called Broken Baby. Greetings one and all. I'd personally like to thank you for tuning in. Some of you are faithful listeners, and some might have just stumbled onto us by accident. We are the Brown County Hour. Welcome and enjoy. This particular episode awkwardly falls right at the culmination of this crazy presidential election. Throughout history, there may have been other elections where candidates were equally qualified or equally not qualified, and perhaps as contentious and competitive as these two. The thing is, with modern media and technology, we know more about each of these candidates than we ever possibly knew before. And speaking of technology, my daughter had to have one of the new iPhone 7s, and I went ahead and upgraded my phone, but I got the older number 6. That way, I'll have a little bit left for the kid's inheritance. I also got a pair of those new goggles. They sort of wrap around your head and act like blinders. You get an app for your phone, then you type in an experience that you'd like to have. You then insert your phone into the goggles, and then... Voila, virtual reality. You can feel like you're in a canoe out on a lake. You can enjoy a walk on the Appalachian Trail. You can get the rush of flying a small prop plane. Your eyes and brain experience the sensation. So even if you're wheelchair bound, you can sensationally and emotionally feel like you are there. It's very recommended for the old folks home. The reason I bring this up, you'll never guess what I programmed in. I typed in, nice life. Being inside the goggles, it was an eye-opening experience. There was no more guns and violence on every TV channel as you scroll through. The news hour was good news, weather, and sports. On the reality shows, they were all getting along instead of arguing. When traffic was heavy, other drivers would motion you out and wave you on without a dirty look because you had to pull out in such a quick, short, open spot. Starving kids had full tummies and smiles on their face instead of tears. Puppies and kittens all had homes and played together. 
Much of the military budget was spent on health and education. Roads and bridges were in good repair. Everyone had finally realized that no matter what part of the globe one lives on, we all live here together and we made it work. As individuals, we all grow and mature. We grow out of the childish fears and inhibitions and move through life making rational and productive decisions. Most of us figure out that working things out and often meeting in the middle turns out more positive than fisticuffs. Society is or should be the same. We have cars instead of horse and buggies. There's a lot less dueling between candidates these days. You can reach into your pocket or purse and call someone. You can communicate at any time or any place. Despite certain turmoil that continues on this earth, there's a lot of good going on. Let's hope this election produces positive results for the planet. This is Pam Rader, and I'm here on behalf of the Brown County Hour. Ruth Reichman is our guest tonight. Ruth, hi. Hi, Pam. I'm the president of Peaceful Valley Heritage Preservation, and uh, I was asked to talk about some of our projects. And the most important one is an invitation to the community to join us for Brown County celebrates the bicentennial and actually also the centennial of our state parks. And that will be on Thursday, November 17 at 6.30 p.m. at the Brown County History Center. And we have a very interesting project. So let's get a little background on this. I know the League of Women Voters worked many years ago on visioning what they'd like to see. It was a community conversation on Vision 2020, it was called. That's right. And it seemed that the gist of the project was that since we didn't have industry, that our biggest hope for employment and economic development is tourism. And that included wellness, where people would come here to relax and rejuvenate. And it included heritage, cultural heritage, our artists and our history. And we now have this beautiful history center. So we've been trying to build on this in this community. Is that correct? uh, We had a lot of community conversations, and uh, basically wellness, tourism, and heritage tourism are the fastest-growing tourism in the world. And uh, Brown County, when you look at all of our cultural assets, which you just mentioned, but also our wonderful natural assets, uh, the park and uh, all of our nature centers, and then our historic uh, assets. And this is somewhat what we will be talking about in Brown County Celebrates the Bicentennial. And so to this effect, You've helped create this group called Peaceful Valley, and and its whole goal is to preserve the older buildings, the historical buildings in the town and the county. And you've been effective in getting the Bill Monroe's Music Park to be a national historic. Well, uh, no. 
uh, actually all we did is we put up a marker saying that uh, it is a very special place and it fits perfectly into the third project that we are introducing on November 17, which is Hoosier Hills Scenic Byway Project. That grew out of a interest in having a scenic byway running from Morgantown to Nashville. And as you know, State Route 135 is Bill Monroe Memorial Highway. And it is named because Bill Monroe uh, Music Park and Campground is such a vital and important part of this particular stretch of road. And the oldest bluegrass venue in the world. Right. And Mm -hmm. it brings a lot of international guests. Uh, This is why I think we need to look at Bean Blossom from a historic as well as a natural project and try to bring it back. So this scenic byway, the map that I have in front of me, it'll go all the way up through Mooresville, Monrovia, all the way down through Brownstown, Medora, and the part in Brown County will be up 135 and 45, it looks like. Even 37's included. It's quite a big project. Well, what happened when we started meeting, uh, all of a sudden, this scenic byway project created such enthusiasm that Monroe, Jackson, and Lawrence counties would like to become a part of it. And that is what you see here. So, in order to get this project off the ground, we were given assignments. All of us have to collect the different attractions, cultural, natural, and historic, including also eateries, because people love to go to restaurants, and all of the areas which are located near or can be looped from the scenic byway. So I've heard it said that the state park system was the gift Hoosiers gave to themselves on their 100th birthday. So while the state's celebrating 200 years, the parks are celebrating their 100th birthday. And you've been part of trying to get the parks to have some of their historic sites refurbished, brought back to good condition. Is that correct? (laughs) That is actually only a first step. That's a hope. (laughs) We hope that by actually focusing on the park, and that is what we did, Mark Dolacy, uh, the first vice president of Indiana Landmarks, had an intern uh, put together a plan that will show 51 contributing sites and structures within the Brown County State Park Historic District. And it will show features such as vistas, trees planted by the CC, dams and lakes by the CC, and some trails which are included, as well as landscapes. And all of this should be, so we try to have this uh, listed on the National Register for Historic Places. 
So this is wonderful, Ruth, to label this as a Brown County celebrating the bicentennial. And the centennial. And laying the groundwork for the next hundred years. So Ruth, thank you for speaking to us tonight and for all your work that you've done. And I hope that you will attend Brown County Celebrates the Bicentennial. Thursday, November 17 at 6.30 at our Brown County History Center. Thank you, Ruth. Welcome to Forest Song. I'm your host, Carrie Ray. And something I've been thinking a lot about for a while now is the blurred line between songwriter and storyteller. In fact, I was planning to dedicate this segment to the exploration of that topic when I remembered that I had seen a Seattle-based singer-songwriter whose show was a mix of song and spoken word live right here in Brown County earlier this summer. His name is Jason Webley, and after his show, I sat down with him at a table outside for a chat while the crickets sang, the audience headed home, and the cows kept us company as they grazed in the pasture next to the parking lot. It went a little something like this. One of the things that really stuck out to me, Jason, about your show is um, this great kind of intermingling of storytelling through song and then storytelling, I guess, adjacent to the songs themselves. So I was curious as to whether or not that's something that you've always done as a performer or is this something that's been more recent for you? It's, I mean, it's always been there to an extent, but mm-hmm. I took a break from performing and, and this last yearish has been me kind of experimenting with going out and playing to rooms of people again and, and I think yeah there has been a conscious decision to to kind of do like less rock more talk and and uh, <laughs> yeah you know because I you know like the songs you know I mean I lo- it's it's fun playing the songs but they're you know they're kind of these like static things I mean they, they, they shift a bit every time you play them but and, and I love playing them, but like the stories, kind of every time you tell them, they they twist and turn and move in different ways a bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I just really enjoy it. And and I I, I hope the audience enjoys it too. I, I I did an experiment less than a week ago. I did a show in New York, and I I had I'd been in New York three months ago, and I, I did a nice little show similar to tonight of mm-hmm. you know playing off, showing the new songs and telling some stories. And anyway, I was going to be passing back through again, so I. I I did something a little different, and I just told a single story that took about three hours. And That was your show? And that was my show. <clears throat> there was a song at the beginning and then a, a little fragment of a song at the end, but the show was just me talking for about two and a half, three hours. I feel like there's not a huge difference between telling stories, singing songs. Like, you know, I, I could be up there, like, you know, knitting a hat or something. Like, like you're just trying to, like engage people and move energy around and, right. and whatever whatever thing you happen to be doing is just a tool. I mean I like the label of just songwriter though. Like or like I, I'm just uh-huh. a musician, you know, and yeah. then I can kinda get up there and do whatever I want. Right. You know? Like right. whereas like if you're like going to a theater piece or you're going to like a performance art thing, there's just so many ideas of what's gonna happen. And I, I, I've always enjoyed just being like, yeah, I, I, I'm a musician. I play songs, and then I, I can kind of go up there and do anything, and yeah. it all like no one's ever like been like, 
you said you were a musician and like you spent 40% of the night talking and maybe some people walked away feeling that but uh, no one's ever expressed that to me yeah I think if you if you rewind far enough back in our human history recorded human history that's really that broader definition of performer or musician is really kind of an age-old idea Right. I mean, it, it seems like the separations between all the genres of performance have become sharper as time has marched on. Right. Yeah. Like the yeah. There's you know instrumentalists. There's stand-up comedians. There's you know singer-songwriters. There's um, yeah. And yeah. I guess there's sort of our storytellers, although that, that's more rare. While storytellers, liars, and spinners of yarns are not so rare in these parts. I think Jason is right that in the broader sample of today's society, they are. The early performer I was referencing in my chat with him was, of course, the minstrel. Defined as a medieval singer or musician, especially one who sang or recited lyric or heroic poetry to a musical accompaniment for the nobility. Interestingly, synonyms are musician, balladeer, poet, troubadour, and bard, just to name a few. Rooted from the Latin word meaning servant, and coming in Old French and English to mean servant and entertainer interchangeably. These individuals played a varied and important role in medieval society. Singer, songwriter, poet, playwright, thespian, news anchor, historian, comedian, and satirist. All in the context of service. This broader sense of entertainer certainly resonates with me and aligns with some of the things I've been experimenting with of late as a songwriter and performer. As Jason mentioned, it's really about moving energy around. I'll add that it's about expression and connection. That's why I think it's important always, but especially if you plan on performing your own work, to think of it and test a song as a conduit for shared energy. This is your Midwestern minstrel, Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. If you'd like to learn more about Jason and his music, well, and stories, you can find out more at jasonwebley.com. Webley spelled W-E-B-L-E-Y. ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website, carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y.com. Thanks for listening. This song's called Broken Baby. Alarm bell Triggered
Pause for station identification. Support for WFHB in the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Our final segment begins with a conversation about the Arts and Entertainment Commission with Nancy Crocker, and we'll listen to a few words from Dave Seastrom. We'll close the show with another song from Lindsay Evans, Call Me Back. We have Nancy Crocker and Chuck Wills with us tonight, and uh, we're going to be discussing the Arts and Entertainment Commission and the Bicentennial. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Hi. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks so much for coming in. You know, we had a little discussion about all of this uh, as we were setting up, and this is actually a pretty interesting topic. So are we going to start with the bison? Sure. Well, let's, let's hear about this I will start with bison. the bison. So basically, Larry Prugeot presented the bison at the commission meeting, and I kind of fell in love with it and right away snagged it and said I would be in charge. So the bisons roamed Indiana. So for the, quote, bicentennial, they asked every county to have a bison and to paint it that would represent their county. Now, this is actually a plains bison. Is that correct? And we had woodland bison? <laughs> I uh, don't know. splitting hairs? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I believe, actually, it's a concrete bison. Yes. Well, no, really. Is, it, is it's, that really it's, what it's made of? No, it's fiberglass. It's, oh, okay. It's That's more fiberglass. Better. I can almost pick it up. Okay. And I don't think I could do that to a regular bison. So essentially, uh, you got community involvement uh, to paint and decorate this bison, and now it's at the courthouse. Yes. Uh, We did a call out for artists in the newspaper, and I am also a member of the Art Alliance. So I asked some people from there, too, and we just kind of had an open paint at the Community Foundation And it was great fun, and I learned so much even from other artists painting leaves on a bison. (laughs) Well, it is an extraordinarily attractive bison, I I have to say that. (laughs) So the other things that you're involved in are public art. Yes. 
And we have several beautiful pieces around town. Uh, probably the highest profile is the leaf sculpture, but we were talking about several of the other pieces and your interest in moving them to new locations. You want to talk about some of those? Sure. So several things we're doing. Um, there's a, a high lonesome art piece in front of the Nashville house, and we're talking about moving it over to the pavilion. And speaking of that, that is where our free concerts are at the pavilion. So we had a handful of concerts once a month this year and even did an encore one last Saturday. And we're planning on doing even more next year. So being that the sculpture was guitars, we felt like it was an appropriate place to move it to. Now, that's a Mike Evans piece, is that correct? I think so, yeah. Well, uh, there's also the dancers and the uh, beta faces, and you were talking about other locations for those pieces as well? Yeah, I think through this, the, these are this is the first time the commission has done this, and so I think through placing the artwork and experiencing it where it is, we've learned where things should go or where things shouldn't go. And so we think that the dancers in front of Artist Colony is a little big for that space. It's a little tall. People don't really get a good perspective of of really the sculpture. So we're looking at moving it down to um, the end of Pat Riley and Jefferson and moving the beta sculpture over to Coach Light Square so that it will get more attention over there. Now, Chuck, were you involved in the music series? I was. That was one of the things that I did, and uh, we really helped it come to life. It's the uh, idea of Tim Meyer. He's a local musician. And so it was his idea that he brought to us. And we thought, you know, what better way to uh, help support local music than have the local musicians uh, playing at the pavilion. So uh, Tim Meyer and the Arts Entertainment Commission and the town, Sandy Jones in particular, uh, was very instrumental in, in pulling all that off. Well, we were treated to some of that at the outhouse race that coincided with a, uh, a group, uh, a young band that played rock and roll, as I recall. I, unfortunately, I can't think of their name right now, but they, they were entertaining. And, and I believe Jeff Foster closed the day out. Uh, That's right. So, yeah, lots of local entertainment. And, of course, it's become this hub of spontaneous music eruptions in the form of the, the uh, Tuesday Night Jam. Yeah, actually, on the way here, I noticed that they are all meeting there, and it looks like they're having a cookout tonight. Yeah, it's getting <laughs> kind of cold to play now, isn't it? Well, this, uh, this Tuesday is going to be the last outdoor jam for the season, and they're going to be moving it over to Muddy Boots for the, the colder months, and then back to the pavilion in the spring. What a great thing. So among the other things that you're doing is uh, you're involved in something uh, for the comfort station, which is the new restrooms at the old library. Yes, um, we are actually the ones gonna that are going to oversee all the artwork. It looks very plain now and uh, doesn't have anything on the walls. And by the time we're done with it, we're hoping to have all of the walls covered with art and murals and historic pictures. And it'll have a, a small play area outside and benches and tables and all kinds of places where people can rest and hopefully listen to the concert across the street. Excellent. Well, tell us about your Facebook page. You can find us at Arts Village Brown County on Facebook. Well, thank you so much, guys, for telling us about these events and uh, all of the work that you're doing. And I am hopeful that people will now get a little backstory on that bison and not just assume that he fell out of the sky or something. So. <laughs> and he looks great this time of year. Yeah, He's so beautiful. he blends right yeah. in, uh, which is probably helpful if you're trying to be a bison incognito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Appreciate your coming in. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. 
There's something wonderful about the transition from summer to fall. There's also something wonderful about finally getting through the elections. As team member Rick Fedig pointed out, the first time the show will be aired this month on Sunday morning, we'll still have two days until we know the outcome. When the show airs the second time on Wednesday, we'll know how it turned out. With that in mind, I'm specifically writing from the I-don't-know-how-it-turned-out perspective. Brown County has, for most of its existence, been a hard-scrabble place to make a living. The people who lived here were pioneers long after everybody else decided to move on. It's not that they chose this path, it's about the fact that there really weren't many other options. There's always been a robust political involvement in the county, and even though there have always been two parties, there was a long time when one of them dominated the other. I think it's safe to say that Brown County was solidly behind Franklin D. Roosevelt, and many of the locals benefited from the work Projects Administration and the Civilian Conservation Corps. From some of the old timers I've spoken with, when they joined the WPA or the CCC or the military, that was the first time in their lives that they were actually paid in dollars. Up until that time, they traded goods for goods. These groups also built much of the infrastructure for Brown County State Park and dug Yellowwood Lake. Here in the county, the Depression was as bad or worse than anywhere in the country. There were some advantages to being able to grow your own food and hunt or fish to supplement your diet, but these were hard times no matter how you look at it. The actions of FDR helped a lot of people here, and for several generations, Brown County was democratic. That changed as we received an influx of newcomers who brought their own perspective with them, and now the county is far more mixed. I've heard a few stories about past elections and how they were conducted. One of my favorites is how party leaders would station themselves at the polls with a truck full of half-pint whiskey bottles and pass them out after people voted. This is a much better idea than passing the whiskey out before they vote. Given how few people vote these days, I think this idea might need to be revisited. In those times, the sale of alcohol was prohibited on election day, just as it is now. So I suppose the idea was the fastest way to that first drink of the day was to go to the polls and vote. There was a lot of enthusiasm for voting in the old days. There were great celebrations and lots of drinking and dancing. The early settlers knew what it was to live under the thumb of a tyrant, and to them, voting was a sacred right. As the generations have passed, the collective memory of this experience has faded, and now increasing numbers of people stay home. I think it was easier to like politics in the old days. For one thing, as an individual here in the hinterlands, you were only exposed to so much at one time. There were local events that took place before the election and the newspapers to read the latest news from, but including the conversations you had with your fellow citizens, that was about it. Now we're tweeting and posting and frothing at the mouth during the 24-7 news cycle while we're obsessing over the latest polls. If you choose that path, you could spend the entire election season glued to your TV and never get any rest. One of the beautiful things about living in Brown County is the option to participate in the 21st century or not. Once enough current news is absorbed and you know who you're going to vote for, you have the choice to stop the flow of information. Here's a few suggestions on how to stay sane during the elections. Don't watch commercial TV or listen to commercial radio. 
WFHB in the Brown County Hour can help you with that. Great music can soothe the savage beast in all of us. And a good radio variety show can take us to unexpected places while we're being entertained. It's absolutely beautiful outside right now. The colors are a little flat this year, but the views are still spectacular. I think one of the effects of too much time spent watching the election is NDD. This is a horrible malady that can affect anyone who spends too much time inside. I'm talking about nature deficit disorder. Fortunately, the cure is as simple as taking a nice long walk in nature. Instantly, the stress of modern living fades away and we become the natural beings we've always been. The wind and the sky are the same in timeless serenity, and it becomes apparent that, in the big picture, the silly things humans obsess over don't matter as much as we think. So, if you're listening to the show on Sunday, hang in there. It's almost over. And if you're listening on Wednesday, I hope everything turned out for the best. In the meantime, I'm going for a hike. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This song is called Call Me Back.
thanks for tuning in to episode 56 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks that believe the world and clean water are for everyone. This show was produced by Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh